Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Thanks again for joining us here at Faith in Your Recovery. We consider today's opportunity a true privilege to share with you another story of someone who has battled through the darkness, fought the challenges. No, it's not over. It's never over. But when you get to that point of victory where you can start to look behind you with, you know, a different style of pride instead of looking ahead with fear, you're getting there. And that's the story you're going to hear in just a little bit. So our guest today is Don McWhorter. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Well, it's nice to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you with us. Uh, folks, just so you know, I usually get a little bio on folks, and Dawn and I have already spoken, and she's going to keep it raw. She's going to keep it real. And we know that folks out there, different ones, many of you are going to be able to relate either personally or I know that person kind of thing. I know someone who knows someone. Well, let's go ahead with that. Don, you go back to the beginning wherever you'd like to. I know that uh, I like what you said in your bio. You grew up in a war zone with your parents yes, sir, fighting did. and drinking. Tell us a little about that, please. Your age, the um, experience. It, it, it was definitely different from where I'm at now. Um, I grew up in East St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, in the ghetto. Actually, I was in the projects when we first started. Um, then my parents got a house, and the fighting got worse because we lived behind a liquor store and a bar. Um, they would beat on each other. They'd beat on us kids. I was adopted, so I got it a little worse. Oh. Um, as far back as I can remember, everything was fighting and screaming and drinking and hitting. And then, as my mother put it, my dad left when I was five because he couldn't take it no more, and he left all of us kids. How many um, kids were there? There was seven of us. Okay. Where were you in that birth order? I was the youngest, and I was the only one that was adopted by my mom. Okay. The rest were her biological. All right. Go ahead. Tell us a little more about that experience, please. Uh. I was the black sheep of the family because she wasn't my mom, and I was blamed for my dad running off. I got treated very poorly by my siblings. Um, actually, my brother just passed away last week, and I'm not allowed to go to his funeral. They informed me I wasn't family. Um, but it's kind of been that way my whole life with them, so I got used to it. Okay, but, so that was never you know, reconciled in any way due to circumstances and conditions, correct? Correct. Okay, okay. That had And when our mother passed away, it, 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 everything stopped between all of us. How long ago was that? When did she pass? October 8th, 2019. 
And the day I was coming home from prison, she was picking me up. I remember reading that. Yes, she was coming to, was it a car accident or was it a health? No, she had a stroke and a heart attack in the passenger seat while my sister was driving in Janesville, Wisconsin. She was 97 miles away from me. So you did not get to see her at that point. No, sir. I got to hear her die over the phone. Wow. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure we'll touch on that here in a little bit in a different way, okay? I know that (laughs) during that time you said you suffered a lot of mental and physical and sexual abuse, right? Yes, sir. Um, My brothers and sisters were actually removed from my mother's care. Um, they were all older than me. Um, my closest sibling to me is 10 years in difference in age. Uh-huh. Um, so they were all removed, and they were placed with separate families. Um, one was placed with the senior family. One was placed with uh, this lady that I grew up calling my Aunt Lori. Um, and, like, the other ones, I don't even know. My one brother was kicked out when he was 16 because he came out of the closet as being gay. Um, I still don't know wherever he went. Uh, but they were all taken away, but I was left in the care of my mother. And when she kept me, it was crazy because of the fact that she started using me for different things, like calling my dad to get money is how it started when I was about eight. Um, and he, she would come up with all these different excuses why I had to have the money and why my mom couldn't get it or whatever. And, it's because we found out later she had a drug problem. Well, when she couldn't pay her debts and I got a little older, um, as she put it, if you're old enough to bleed, you're old enough to breed. How, and that's how, when she started tricking me out at 12 years old. 12. That was my next question. What was that age? So that tells us that. I was 12. Um, I got pregnant. At 12. At 12. I had an abortion because my mom was trying to hide the abuse that was going on at home. And two weeks after I had my abortion, I was pregnant again. I had my first son when I was 13. So you've lived a life of challenge from the get-go, it sounds like. Yes, sir. Wow. Wow. Sorry for all that Mm -hmm. pain, but I'm going to... By the time I was 17, I had four kids. I'm going to guess. And I had a hell of a drug problem. Yes. And that, what, was to numb all of that, to help you deal with it? Is that what you yeah. used mm-hmm. as that mental excuse? It blocked it out. When it got introduced to me by my sister, um, she told me it would make me forget how I was feeling, and it would make everything okay. How old were and you when you started drinking what and age? doing nothing. What age did you start that drinking? Uh, I was about 10, I think, when I started drinking. Okay. Because I was already on to hard drugs by the time I was 12. Describe those hard drugs, all right? Give us a, a short list. I was using cocaine daily. I was using opiates daily. Um, Vicodin is how it started, and then it progressed to heroin. What was your access? How did you get those drugs at that time? Was it from your older siblings or was it from your mom? It was actually, uh, it, it was it was what they call in the drug world, <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. 
I went to get the link card from my sister. We were living in a hotel room. We had two rooms. We had one where my sister took care of whatever she did. And then we had the room for me and my kids and her. She had the link card and I did not knock on the door next door. I just went in there and they were in the middle of a drug deal. And a pistol was actually placed to my head. And I was told to get higher. I was going to die. And my sister with no remorse handed me a straw. Wow. wow. And that was the first time I OD'd on heroin. So all of this is still back there in that St. Paul area. Is that what you had said? Yes. 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 Okay. Okay. Uh, what about your education? Were, were you even going to I school? That wasn't a, yeah, I honestly, I remember starting not to go to school right after my son was born. I was 13. I hadn't even made it into junior high yet. I, my mom didn't help me with the baby. I had nobody. My goodness. So was there anybody anywhere that you could turn to for support? Was there a safe place for you? Or was this just, got to say it, the living hell it sounds like? It was my life. I, I had, I was determined that it was a cruel sick joke and that I was cursed. And even being 40 years old, I, some days I still believe it. You were labeled that and you bought into the label because you didn't see anything that said you weren't cursed. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. It, it's sad. It's tragic. And I, I feel awkward saying this. I almost understand why you turned to the drink and the drugs with all you were going through that the only moments of relief, the only moments of peace you had were when you were high. When my brain shut down and I was high. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I know. It's a terrifying thought. Goodness. My body is still to this day because of my PTSD. I'm stuck in flight or flight. Um, yes. And my body never relaxes. I'm constantly in high tension, high fear. It doesn't matter what environment I'm in. Anxiety issues on top of that, I'm sure. Oh, horribly. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, okay. Uh, you met your, your husband-to-be and... He was a drug dealer, correct? Yes. Tell us, lead us forward from there. <laughs> um, by this time, I had had four children. Um, my son had already been murdered at this point. Your son. I had, my son was four years old, and he was murdered. How did that come um, down? I was robbed. Yeah, I was robbed for $48.58, to be exact. Um, Is that... And- is that when that he was lost his that, life? Did he yeah, lose his life son. during that episode, you know, the robbery? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were mugged coming off the city bus. Okay. Less than, less than 40 feet from my home. You could almost touch the front door but couldn't get there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Good. And up there they don't. They do not do well. Like you, you, you mind your own business. Somebody's screaming, you don't. You keep your head down and you keep walking, so you're not a part of it up there. 
Unima- so nobody helped us. Yes, yes. Here in rural, you know, I'm from rural Indiana, born, raised, lived there forever, other than a brief stint in the military. I can't relate to those kind of conditions. I'm glad of that. And I don't mean that as a put down to anyone. But I'm thankful. I remember the house that we grew up in. My neighbor, you could touch his house and my mom's house at the same time. We lived next to this man for my whole life, and I never knew his name until he died shoveling snow in the snowbank next to my house. You just, you minded your own business in the house and outside the house. That's the only way to survive when you're in the project. Okay. Okay. Wow. Tough conditions for sure. Okay. Brings out drug dealers and killers. That's it. So your husband was a dealer, and yes, uh, sir. then uh, take us forward from there. It, I get the impression there was some physical abuse at some point from him. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't until I said I do, though. Um, when I met my husband, my ex-husband now, um, when I met him, I was 16. A friend of mine had given me his number because he was the local hookup, and so we met and it was an instant Bonnie and Clyde attraction <laughs> and he found out what was going on at home and he started coming over to my mom's house to try to stop it. So I thought he was my knight in shining armor when he offered to move me and I seen the money and the glamorous side and he says, what do you want to do? I said, I don't want to never have to worry about money or drugs again, but I want to build an empire and he said, let's do it. And so the and, drugs became readily available, and that was also yes, a means of support that allowed you to meet yes, other uh, responsibilities, you know, financial responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how long and were you this, part of that empire, that drug empire you uh, were building? 20 years we had a run. 20 years. We had a 20-year run. Um, we were southern Illinois, biggest drug county bust in 10 years. Uh, I actually just seen my paperwork the other day for the first time when my husband, he's in work release now. And uh, he was able to send copies of his paperwork. Um, but we were caught with over 4,000 grams of methamphetamines, finished product. Um, that's not including the waste and all of that. Um, five guns, $70,000. So how many years did that cost him or, you know, what's he got sentenced to 16. Okay. Our partner got sentenced to 12 and I got sentenced to seven. Okay. How much of that time did you serve your seven years? Almost three years. Okay. Okay. They tried to give me drug court, but I couldn't stay sober. It was a complete joke. Nothing was going to work for you because you weren't ready to work at anything. Is that accurate? I, I don't want to, to put words in your mouth. No, I wanted to die. I, I didn't want anything to work. I, at that point, when we got busted, that was like the worst point of my entire life. They took my children, which that's all I've ever been is a mom and a wife. And they took my identity from me. Like, literally, I didn't even have a name. They called us Jim and Dawn. And so to this day, people will recognize me and they're like, oh, Jim and Dawn. And I have to remind them, I'm like, no, it's just Dawn. Yeah. Because I never had my own identity because we had built this empire together. 
we're back to that Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yep. fits that scenario well, folks, if you've ever seen the movie. And if not, you need to. It's well worth your time, okay? Uh, <laughs> so anyway, okay. So you dealt with that, and then that was around 2002. Is that accurate? Yeah. Then uh, it was two, We moved here in 2000, and then um, we got married. <laughs> That was a joke. He hit me two weeks after our daughter was born. I had her August 28th of 2001. And two weeks later, it was actually 9-11. How I will never forget that day. It's the first time he punched me in the face. Goodness. So, yep. what, you know, when I say how did you respond to that, I don't mean at the moment but what I tried did not that... to drop our two-week-old daughter on the floor. You had her in your arms when he punched you. Yes, sir. I was breastfeeding her at the time. Do you remember why he punched you? Or did he? Because even... I told him I was feeding the baby and I wouldn't get up to get him something. I think he wanted his pipe or something. I can't remember exactly what. It, it was over drugs. I do remember that. But because you but told I can't him remember exactly no what under... it was about. Yes. You told him no under the circumstances, and he didn't want to know, and he let you know that. Yeah, and then he reminded me that in our wedding vows, I said obey. All right, all right. So then you, uh, your story says you got into rehab after rehab, and like you said, you weren't ready to accept the help, or you were getting help but not helping yourself. Right. And uh, we just, we kept getting bigger and bigger with our drug deals. And then we started cooking meth. Um, When we started cooking, that's when everything got out of control because then we had the money, we had all the drugs we wanted. We had friends, we had, you know, people were terrified of us because they knew we didn't play. It, it, It was ridiculous. And we loved every minute of it so much that we didn't care about our kids, our life, what we were doing to everybody else. You didn't feel like a failure at that time, did you? You were on top of things, at least in your part of the world, correct? Right. Yeah, we, we were untouchable in our in, in our circle. You know, everybody knew our name. Everybody wanted our dope. It, it was everywhere. Every Everybody knew our names in the street. You used the word curse. You weren't cursed then. You felt more blessed than cursed. I've got blessings now. I was cursed back then. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, then I know that led into an incident on May 16 of 2016 when you were were, uh, raided by the DEA and Drug Task Force as well as the state police. Tell us about that. Yeah, (laughs) and the ATF. (laughs) Um, they raided my home in Watson, Illinois, uh, for large amounts of methamphetamine, guns, and money, which they found all of. Um, they also found me. I was beat almost to death with a crowbar. My ex-husband had a two-sided deadbolt on our bedroom door where you had to have a key to get in and get out. And I was locked in there regularly. Um, his friends actually used to joke about it when I got out of jail first, cause I bonded out. Um, and they used to joke about it that when he got out, don't worry, he'll lock me up again. 
and it was a big joke because everybody had seen him do this to me over the years. And like, they even, when he would owe money, he would just sell me to his friends and I would have to do whatever, you know, and that, like, I can honestly say out of everybody he ever owed money to, there was one guy in town that I will always have mad love for because he was the only one that respected me as a person and knew I didn't want to be there. Do you have any connection with that individual at this time? I do. Was he one of the first people in your life that you recall that was there for you? Mm, he was the first one to show me compassion. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was probably pity more than compassion, but in my eyes, I took it. Well, there was at least some some respect there. Uh, yeah, or, absolutely. You know, yeah. You'd have just been a moment to him otherwise, but he obviously had respect for you. Yes, his mama did him right. That's for that's for sure. <laughs> you made the comment that your husband had beat you the night before with a crowbar. Yes. And so when the DEA showed up, the timing was pretty good in the respect that they actually that was a, I found out where I found out later is they had been investigating us for 18 months. Um, they were not supposed to raid my home that morning, but in the 18 months that we had been under investigation and complete surveillance, my children, I had three, my, I called them my younger children. My older children stayed in Minnesota when I moved down here. My older, my younger children that are with my ex-husband, they were all in the home and they had never missed a day of school ever. Like my, me and my kids were always out on the front porch at 645 every morning waiting for their bus. And when the door didn't open, the people that were surveilling us got worried because they watched my husband and his girlfriend at the time leave the house the night before. And when me and the kids didn't get out, they got worried. Even the bus driver got worried that day. They, the, the investigator said that the bus driver got out of her bus and walked up to my door and knocked on my door for over five minutes before she radioed into the bus station that the Erickson kids weren't coming out. And they were worried. So I don't know if the school called in uh, uh, a check or if it was the investigators, because the investigators from what the, the officer, Bill Freeze, uh, he was the head of the task force, was telling me it was that they were worried as well. Because they knew he was beating on me. They knew what kind of conditions me and the kids were in. And when we didn't come out, at least not one of us came out, that's what alerted everybody that something was really wrong. So obviously that surveillance had a had an understanding of your rhythm and everything you guys were about. And when they yes, recognized the pattern changed, they decided it was time to do something. Yes, and, and that, that's when they got the go-ahead to get the raid done at, I think it was, 8.45 in the morning. That had to be a a pretty horrific moment by the same token. I, don't re I really don't remember much of it. Um, I remember hearing the glass breaking, the screaming. Um, I remember him demanding me to open the door, and I couldn't. Um, I really thought I was going to die. I didn't know if I was being robbed <laughs> or if it was I was being raided. I didn't know what was going on. 
And when they realized I really couldn't open the door, that's when the officers had to kick through my wall to get into my bedroom to save my life. Wow. Wow. That's heavy stuff. Uh, And so following that, you lost everything you had, your husband, your children, uh, your whole world, as you said earlier. You had just, you know, lost it all in a heartbeat in some ways over the years. Everything. Everything I had tried to protect for 20 years was gone in an instant. And your identity went with that because you were yes. a mother, a wife, uh, et cetera. That's all I'd ever been. Yeah, yeah. So shortly after that, you switched over to heroin, OD'd yes. several times, and uh, oh god, yeah, went into drug court and jumped through their hoops, and uh, then right back to getting high again and. You know, in and out of I made jail. about six months on drug court before I screwed it up. <laughs> okay, okay. Then, uh, you know, back and forth into jail. And then something pretty dramatic happened in a very positive way, July 13 and 2018. Tell us about yes. that experience. Um, I had OD'd. I was on the run from drug court. Um, <laughs> and when I woke up in the hospital, they, I was handcuffed to a bed, and they brought me back to Effingham County Jail because I was on the run. Uh, when I went in front of the judge, I told them she was going to give me a 10-day sanction. And I told her, I said, Judge Sanders, if you do that, I'm going to die. And I started to cry because I knew at that point, if I walked back out after 10 days, I was dead. I was going to OD, and I wouldn't come back. I knew it. And I revoked my drug court because if I walked out of them gates, I was going to die. And I knew it, and I didn't want to die no more. I don't even know why. I just didn't want to die no more. Something inside of me in that jail cell after I OD'd clicked, and I didn't want to die no more. I was in a fight. You were ready. You were sick and tired of being sick and tired and ready to fight the battle. Yep. That's what we refer to often here on Faith in Your Recovery. So, Don, how did that fight begin for you to get <laughs> toward recovery? Um, the worst part about it when it started was what the judge had to say to me. Um, when she sentenced me to the full seven at 50% time, I was supposed to serve three and a half years with no good time. Um. She basically told me that I was a waste of space. Um, I would come out and I would OD and I would never make nothing of myself. And I would always be a drug addict and a disappointment to my family, my friends, and the society in a whole. But by your description and that being so painful to you and all, that shows me that you had made a change because you had probably heard similar words before, but they didn't register with you because you didn't care. Your goal was to die, as you've said over and over. But now that you want to live, those same words are hurting. And, uh, yeah, that shows that uh, you were ready to move forward. So how did you move forward? Uh, firstly, I called my mom that I hadn't talked to in 15 years and 
I listened to her side of the story and I had to accept the fact that she did the best that she could with the tools she had, just like I did with my kids. And we kind of came to an understanding that I didn't like what happened to me and I don't agree with it. I would have never done it to my children, but it's, it, it was life. We can't fix it. We can't go back. So we just decided to move forward. And that was the first part of it for me was forgiving her. That's when I found out forgiveness was for me, not for them. Exactly. I hope you heard that, folks. Repeat that again. Would you, Don, the line about forgiveness? Yes, sir. That's when I realized forgiveness is for me. It's not for them. Forgiveness frees us. I couldn't feel being angry. That's it. It takes too much energy, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, and you never really get to it if you stay angry and hold that grudge. You can't move past it. I'm going to read one of the lines from your bio here because it really struck me the depth of it. Okay. You talked yes, about sir. how you'd been sentenced to three years at 50%. That's a year and a half, 18 months. You served yes. 15 months and learned about NA learned how to deal with what had happened to you and that it wasn't your fault, but using drugs was your fault. Absolutely. Uh, You came to a recognition of the damage other things had done, but you also came to a point of recognition that the drugs were your choosing regardless of why. That's big. That's right. <laughs> that is where the healing begins. That's where recovery begins, recognizing our role. And now it's your role to move forward, and you've chosen to yeah. do that. So how long have you been clean now, Dawn? Almost five years. I, <laughs> someone who, pardon me, could have and maybe should have been dead multiple times. When I say should have, I mean because of what was cast upon you, okay? Absolutely. Like I, be... there, I can name at least eight times off the top of my head where I should not be alive. Wow. Wow. I've never heard of anyone being beaten with crowbar, but I've used a crowbar enough to know that that's a wicked tool. Especially... I've been lit on fire. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. Not a lot. It's all part of life where I grew up. So today, tell us about Dawn today. Tell us about your feelings toward life, God's involvement in your life, you as an individual. Now let's move from the pain and the hurt to a little more of the glory story. Uh, We know it's always. That actually starts in the oddest place ever. Um, <laughs> it started in the walls of Logan Penitentiary. Um, when I finally got to a place where I didn't have the people, the money, the drugs, I was just like everybody else. I was in blues and whites like everybody else. Um, I wasn't special. There, there was, you know, I had nothing that I had on the streets. Um, that's when I met a lady named Nita. <laughs> and she was an evangelist and I did not believe in God at all. Uh, if there was a God, how could he do that to me? Is how I felt. And she told me, she says, it was our first day in Logan. And she says, darling, she says, I don't know what broke you. She says, but I'm going to find out your story before I leave here. 
she says, we're going to get through this. She says, because God says so. And that night we actually ended up being bunkmates <laughs> and our whole prison bit. She was my roommate. And slowly throughout the time of being at Logan, she got me to read the Bible. And from there, she got me to go to church. And we started just like talking and she would explain everything she could to the best of her knowledge. And like she would even write her uncle who was a pastor and he would write us back answers to questions that I had. And that's kind of how it started. And when that started, that's when I started therapy and counseling and taking advantage of all the groups and programs at Logan to fix myself because I started realizing that the one consistency and all the drama in my life and everything is I put myself there. And once I was able to accept that, that I put myself there, I chose to continue my life this down this path. I chose to continue to keep doing this. And I put myself in prison. Didn't nobody else do that. I did that. That's when I was able to move forward. Well, you also, I'm going to guess, along with recognizing you would put yourself there, if you had the power to put yourself there, you had the power to get out out of there within, you know, the given standards of uh, what you were sent, your sentencing. But the idea, then, if I could sink, I can also climb. And now you're in that climbing mode and continue to be. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) What, What does recovery mean to you today? What does recovery mean? Recovery to me means that I get to actually live, not to survive. Because when you're in full-blown addictions, you are not living. You are surviving the best way you know how. Yes, yes. And when you actually get to a point where you can smile and you can wake up every day and look in the mirror, because most addicts don't even have mirrors unless they're getting high off of them because we don't want to see ourselves. Today, I walk by mirrors and I actually smile because I don't even recognize the person I see anymore because I'm not that person. I'm going to guess that people from, I believe you called it the projects where you grew up, correct? Yes. They wouldn't know Dawn today by behavior, certainly. And I'm going to guess. anybody, Anybody that knew me even four years ago would not know me today, nor would I give them the time of day to know me. Because I'm just, I'm not in that, I'm not in that circle. I wouldn't allow myself to go back to that route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what excites you the most about where you are in life? Um, being a minister. <laughs> you are a minister? I am. Explain I'm that. Actually performing, I'm actually performing a wedding this weekend. That's what excites me the most today. The fact. I love building families and helping communities and being there for support and being able to give words of advice without judgment and knowing that, no, I'm far from perfect and I'm not your average minister. And yes, I have a past and I have tattoos and I have bright red hair and I might wear shirts and skirts that are too short. And But I'm me and God's okay with that because he puts me where other pastors can't go. 
Well, he's brought you out of places a lot of people have never been, so it's certain that he can put you places a lot of others won't go. Exactly, and I love it. But weddings, being able to perform weddings is probably the biggest blessing ever because I get to help build families instead of looking at them as dollar signs and helping destroy them by selling them drugs. So you're looking at life from the other side in many ways now, and you're oh, recognizing yes. you called yourself a curse several times. Yeah. And you probably were, in a sense, a curse to others more than yourself, but now you've chosen to be a blessing, and you're yes. finding ways to do that. What right. does getting to share your story here on Faith in Your Recovery mean to you, Dawn? It means the world to me. Um, I didn't start speaking publicly about what had happened to me outside of the prison walls until about eight months ago. Um, And one of the girls had heard my story and she told the newspaper reporter here (laughs) and they contacted me and they put me in the paper. And because I'm uh, one of the first drivers to apply for the state passages program, where in our town, if you have a drug problem, you go to the police station, with no repercussions, we will take you and drive you to a rehab that will ha- that has an open bed before you get into trouble. And they wanted to know what made me do that and why I jumped up so quickly to do it. And that's when they came to interview me and got my story. And then the whole town knew everything. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, And at that point, it was like, well, it's out there. And it did such um, – I didn't realize how many people in my town were hurt and affected the way I was as a kid. And I had so many people just come up to me that I didn't even know and hug me and thank me for, you know, speaking publicly. And that's when I realized that, you know, being a minister wasn't enough. I wanted to go public. I, my end desire is to have my own facility called Dare to Dream. Dare to to Dream. Yes. Wow. It's tattooed on my arm for my mom. Don, where is home for you now? We don't need the address, just the community. Effingham, name. Illinois. Effingham, Illinois. Yep. Is that down the southern part? Yes. Yes, yes. Been it's th- by St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, okay. I knew we'd been through there a time or two. I just wasn't certain where that was. It's the town was. with a giant cross in it. Okay, okay. Well, they've got a... <laughs> A giant of a person there now as you share this. Folks, we told you in the beginning, this was going to be raw. It was going to be real. And I'm sure that strategically, Dawn has left out a few things, but she told you the truth without giving you the ugly or glamorizing anything. Dawn, thank you. Thank you for joining us here today on Faith in Your Recovery. And folks, if you have any questions, get a hold of me. Shoot us an email at podcast at ablbh.org. And if you've got a question for Don, we'll get that to her. We have contact information for her. Absolutely. I'm more than willing to share my email address. I'm more than willing to help anybody I possibly can. Go ahead and share that right now, if you're willing. It's actually Erickson Dawn, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N-D-A-W-N-0-2 at gmail.com. Erickson Dawn, 
at gmail.com. Yes, sir. Okay, folks, there you go. Uh, get a hold of her, or we'll help you get a hold of her. But again, Don, thank you. Thank you for your time, your willingness. Thank you for the change of life and the way you're touching others. I hope we can all dare to dream. God bless. Take care. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.